Hi everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue, shall we, with Pedro Peramo by Juan Rufo. This is part two. I learned it very late, after my body had already shriveled up and my backbone jutted up higher than the top of my head, and I couldn't walk anymore. And to top it off, everyone was leaving the village. All the people set out for somewhere else and took their charity with them. I sat down to wait for death. After we found you, my bones determined to find their rest. No one will notice me, I thought. I won't be a bother to anyone. You see, I didn't even steal space from the earth. They buried me in the grave with you, and I fit right in the hollow of your arms, here in this little space where I am now. The only thing is that probably I should have my arms around you. You hear? It's raining up there. Don't you hear the drumming of the rain? I hear something like someone walking above us. You don't have to be afraid. No one can scare you now. Try to think nice thoughts because we're going to be a long time here in the ground. At dawn, a heavy rain was falling over the earth. It thudded dully as it struck the soft, loose dust of the furrows. A mockingbird swooped low across the field and wailed, imitating a child's plaint. A little farther, it sang something that sounded like a sob of weariness, and in the distance where the horizon had begun to clear, it hiccuped and then laughed, only to wail once more. Fulgor Sedano breathed in the scent of fresh earth and looked out to see how the rain was penetrating the furrows. His little eyes were happy. He took three deep gulps, relishing the savor, and grinned till his teeth showed. Ah, he said, we're about to have another good year, and then added, come on down, rain, come on down, fall until you can't fall anymore, and then move on. Remember that we work the ground just to pleasure you. And he laughed aloud. Returning from its survey of the fields, the mockingbird flew past him and wailed a heart-rending wail. The rain intensified until in the distance where it had begun to grow light, the clouds closed in, and it seemed that the darkness that had been retreating was returning. The huge gate of the Media Luna squealed as it swung open, wet from the moist wind. First two, then another two, then two more rode out until two hundred men on horseback had scattered across the rain-soaked fields. We'll have to drive the Enmedio herd up past where Estuaga used to be, and the Estuaga cattle up by the Villamo Hills, Fulgor Sedano ordered as the men rode by. And hustle, the rain's really coming down. He said it so often that the last to leave heard only from here to there and from there farther on up. Every man of them touched the brim of his hat to show that he had understood. Almost immediately after the last man had left, Miguel Penamo galloped in at full tilt and without reining in his horse dismounted almost in Fulgor's face, leaving his mount to find its own way to the stall. Where have you been at this hour, boy? Been doing a little milking. Milking who? You can guess. Must have been Dorotea, La Curaca. She's the only one around here likes babies. You're a fool, Fulgor, but it's not your fault. And without bothering to remove his spurs, Miguel went off to find someone to feed him breakfast. In the kitchen, Damiana Cisneros asked him the same question. Now, where have you been, Miguel? Oh, just around, calling on the mothers of the region. 
I didn't mean to rile you, Miguel. How do you want your eggs? Could I have them with a special side dish? I'm being serious, Miguel. I know, Damiana. Don't worry. Listen, do you know a woman named Dorotea? The one they call La Curaca? I do, and if you want to see her, you'll find her right outside. She gets up early every morning to come by here for her breakfast. She's the one who rolls up a bundle in her rebozo and sings to it and calls it her baby. It must be that something terrible happened to her a long while back. But since she never talks, no one knows what it was. She lives on handouts. That damned Fulgar. I'm going to give him a lick that'll make his eyes whirl. He sat and thought for a while, wondering how the woman might be of use to him. Then, without further hesitation, he went to the back kitchen door and called Dorotea. Come here a minute, I've got a proposition to make you, he said. Who knows what deal he'll offer her. The fact is that when he came inside, he was rubbing his hands. Bring on those eggs, he yelled to Damiana and added, From now on, I want you to give that woman the same food you give me. And if it makes extra work, it's no problem of mine. In the meantime, Fulgor Sedano had gone back to check, to check the amount of grain left in the bins. Since harvest was a long way off, he was worried about the shrinking supply. In fact, the crops were barely in the ground. I have to see if we can get by. Then he added, that boy, a ringer for his father, all right. And, but he's starting off too early. At this rate, I don't think he'll last. I forgot to tell him that yesterday someone came by and said he'd killed a man. If he keeps up like this, he sighed and tried to imagine where his ranch hands would be by now. But he was distracted by Miguel Perdamo's young chestnut stallion rubbing its muzzle against the coral fence. He never even unsaddled his horse, he thought, and he doesn't intend to. At least Don Pedro is more reliable, and he has his quiet moments. He sure indulges Miguel, though. Yesterday, when I told him that his son... Yesterday, when I told him what his son had done, he said, Just think of it as being something I did. Fulgor, the boy couldn't have done a thing like that. He doesn't have the guts yet to kill a man. That takes balls this big. And he held his hands apart as if he was measuring a squash. Anything he does, you can lay it on me. Miguel's going to give you a lot of headaches, Don Pedro. He likes to wrangle. Give him his head. He's just a boy. How old is he now? Going on 17, Bulgar? About that. I can remember when they brought him here. It seems like yesterday. But he's wild and he lives so fast that sometimes it appears to me he's racing with time. He'll be the one to lose that game. You'll see. He's still a baby, Fulgor. Whatever you say, Don Pedro, but that woman who came here yesterday, weeping and accusing your son of killing her husband, was not to be consoled. I know how to judge grief, Don Pedro, and that woman was carrying a heavy load. I offered her 150 bushels of maize to overlook the matter, but she wouldn't take it. Then I promised we'd make things right somehow. She still wasn't satisfied. What was it all about? I don't know the people involved. There's nothing to worry about, Fulgor. Those people don't really count. Fulgor went to the storage bins where he could feel the warmth of the maze. He took a handful and examined it to see whether it had been infested with weevils. He measured the height in the bins. It'll do, he said. As, as soon as we have grass, we won't have to, to feed grain anymore. So, so, there's a, so there's more than enough. 
As he walked back, he gazed at the overcast sky. We'll have rain for a good while. And he forgot about everything else. The weather must be changing up there. My mother used to tell me how as soon as it began to rain, everything was filled with light and with the green smell of growing things. She told me how the waves of clouds drifted in, how they emptied themselves upon the earth and transformed it, changing all the colors. My mother lived her childhood and her best years in this town, but couldn't even come here to die. And so she sent me and her place. It's strange, Dorothea, how I never saw the sky. At least it should have been the sky she knew. I don't know, Juan Preciado. After so many years of never lifting up my head, I forgot about the sky. And even if I had looked up, what good would it have done? The sky is so high and my eyes so clouded that I was happy just knowing where the ground was. Besides, I lost all interest after Padre Renteria told me I would never know glory or even see it from a distance. It was because of my sins, but he didn't have to tell me that. Life is hard enough as it is. The only thing that keeps you going is the hope that when you die, you'll be lifted off this mortal coil. But when they close one door to you and the only, and the only one open is the door to hell, you're better off not being born. For me, Juan Preciado, Heaven is right here. And your soul? Where do you think it's gone? It's probably wandering like so many others, looking for living people to pray for it. Maybe it hates me for the way I treated it, but I don't worry about that anymore. And now I don't have to listen to its whining about remorse. Because of it, the little I ate turned bitter in my mouth. It haunted my nights with black thoughts of the damned. When I sat down to die, my soul prayed for me to get up and drag on with my life as if it still expected some miracle to cleanse me of my sins. I didn't even try. This is the end of the road, I told it. I don't have the strength to go on. And I opened my mouth to let it escape. And it went. And I knew when, it, and I, knew when I felt the little thread of blood that bound it to my, to my heart drip into my hands. They pounded at his door, but he didn't answer. He heard them knock at the door. Ap- he heard them knock at door after door, walking everyone around. Fulgore, he knew him by his steps, paused a moment as he hurried toward the main door, as if he meant to knock again, then kept running. Voices, slow, scraping footsteps like people carrying a heavy load, unidentifiable sounds. His father's death came to his mind. It had been an early dawn like this. Almost that morning the door had been open and he had seen the gray of a dismal ashen sky seeping through. And a woman had been leaning against the door frame, trying to hold back her sobs. A mother he had forgotten, forgotten many times over, was telling him, They've killed your father! in a broken, quavering voice held together only by the thread of her sobs. He never liked to relive that memory because it brought others with it, as if a bulging sack of grain had burst and he was trying to keep the kernels from spilling out. The death of his father dragged over de- dragged over debts with it, and in each of them was always the image of that shattered face, one eye mangled, the other staring vengefully and another memory, and another, until that death was erased from memory, and there was no longer anyone to remember it. Lay him down here. No, not like that. Put his head that way. You, what are you waiting for? All this in a low voice. Where's Don Pedro? 
He's sleeping. Don't wake him. Don't make any noise. But there he stood, towering, watching them struggle with a large bundle wrapped in old gunny sacks and bound with hemp like a shroud. Who is it? he asked. Fulgor Sedano stepped forward and said, It's Miguel, Don Pedro. What did they do to him? he shouted. He was expected to hear, they killed him, and he felt the strings of rage forming hard lumps of rancor. Instead, he heard Fulgor Sedano's soft voice saying, no one did anything to him. He met his death alone. Oil lamps lighted the night. His horse killed him, one man volunteered. They laid him out on the bed. They turned back the mattress and exposed the bare boards and arranged the body, now free of bonds they had used to carry it home. They crossed his hands over his chest and covered his face with a black cloth. He looks bigger than he was, Fulgor thought to himself. Pedro Peramo stood there, his face empty of expression, as if he were far away. Somewhere beyond his consciousness, his thoughts were racing, unformed, disconnected. At last, he said, I'm beginning to pay. The sooner I begin, the sooner I'll be through. He felt no sorrow. When he spoke to the people gathered in the patio to thank them for their presence, making his voice heard above the wailing of the women, he was not short either of breath or of words. Afterward, the only sound was that of the pawing of Miguel Paramo's chestnut stallion. Tomorrow, he ordered Fulgor Sedano, get someone to put up that animal, to put that animal down and take him out of his misery. Right, Don Pedro, I understand. The poor beast must be suffering. That's my feeling too, Fulgor. And as you go, tell those women not to make such a racket. They're making too much fuss over my loss. If it was their own, they wouldn't be so eager to mourn. Years later, Father Renteria would remember the night when his hard bed had kept him awake and driven him outside. It was the night Miguel Peramo died. He had wandered through the lonely streets of Comala, his footsteps spooking the dog snipping through the garbage heaps. He walked as far as the river where he stood gazing at how stars falling from the heavens were reflected in quiet eddies. For several hours he struggled with his thoughts, casting them into the black waters of the river. It had all begun, he thought, when Pedro Piramo, from the low thing he was, made something of himself. He flourished like a weed, and the worst of it is that I made it all possible. I have sinned, Padre. Yesterday, I slept with Pedro Peramo. I have sinned, Padre. I bore Pedro Peramo's child. I gave my daughter to Pedro Peramo, Padre. I kept waiting for him to come and confess something, but he never did. And then he extended the reach of his evil of his evil through that son of his, the one he recognized. Only God knows why. What I do know is that I placed, I placed that instrument in his hands. He remembered vividly the day he had brought the child to Pedro Peramo, only hours old. He said to him, Pedro, Don Pedro, the mother died as she gave birth to this baby. She said that he's yours. Here he is. Pedro Peramo never even blinked. He merely said, why don't you keep him, father? Make a priest out of him. With the blood he carries in his veins, I don't want to take that responsibility. Do you really think he has bad blood? I really do, Don Pedro. I'll prove you wrong. Leave him here with me. I can find someone to take care of him. That's just what I had in mind. At least he'll eat if he's with you. Tiny as he was, the infant was writhing like a viper. 
Damiana, here's something for you to take care of. It's my son. Later, he had uncorked a bottle. This one's for the deceased and for you. And for the child? For him too, why not? He filled another glass and both of them drank to the child's future. That was how it had been. Carts began rumbling by towards the Media Luna. Father and Teddy crouched low, hiding in the reeds along the river's edge. What are you hiding from? He asked himself. Adios, Padre, he heard someone say. He rose up and answered, Adios, may God bless you. The lights in the village went out one by one. The river was glowing with luminous color. Padre, had the Angelus rung yet? Asked one of the drivers. It must be much later than that, he replied, and he set off in the opposite direction, vowing not to be stopped. Where are you off so early to, Padre? Where's the death, Padre? Did someone in, Con in Confla die, Padre? He felt like answering, I did, I'm the one who's dead, but he limited himself to a smile. As he left the last houses behind, he walked faster. It was late morning when he returned. Where have you been, uncle? His niece, Anna, asked. A lot of women have been here looking for you. They wanted to confess. Tomorrow's the first Friday. Tell them to come back this evening. He sat for a quiet moment on a bench in the hall, heavy with fatigue. How cool the air is, Anna. It's very warm, uncle. I don't feel it. The last thing he wanted to think about was that he had been in Contla, where he had made a general confession to fellow priests who, despite his pleas, had refused him absolution. That man whose name you do not want to mention has destroyed your church, and you have allowed him to do it. What can I expect of you now, Father? How have you used God's might? I want to think that you're a good man and that, and that you're held in high esteem because of that. But it's not enough to be good. Sin is not good. And to put an end to sin, you must be, you must be hard and merciless. I, I want to think that your parishioners are still believers, but it is not you who sustains their faith. They believe out of superstition and fear. I feel very close to you and your penury and, and the long hours you spend every day carrying out your duties. I personally know how difficult our task is in these miserable villages to which we have been banished, but that in itself gives me the right to tell you that we can not only serve the few who give us a pittance in exchange for our souls, and with your soul in their their hands, what chance do you have to be better than those who are better than you? No, Father, my hands are not sufficiently clean to grant you absolution. You will have to go elsewhere to find that. What do you mean that I must look elsewhere if I want to confess? Yes, you must. You cannot continue to consecrate others when you yourself are in sin. But what if they remove me from my ministry? Maybe you deserve it. They will be the ones to judge. Couldn't you, provisionally, I mean, I must administer the last rites, give communion. So many are dying in my village, Father. Oh, my friend, let God judge the dead. Then you won't absolve me? And the priest in Confla had told him no. Later, the two of them had strolled through the azalea-shaded cloister of the parish patio. They sat beneath an arbor where grapes were ripening. They're bitter, Father, the priest anticipated Father Interio's question. We live in a land in which everything grows, thank to God's providence, but everything that grows is bitter. That is our curse. You're right, Father. I've tried to go I've tried to grow grapes over in Komala. They don't bear. 
Only guavas and oranges, bitter oranges and bitter guavas. I've often, I've forgotten the taste of sweet fruit. Do you remember the china guavas we had in the seminary? The peaches, the tangerines that shed their skin at the touch? I brought seeds here, a few, just a small pouch. Afterward, I felt it would be better to leave them where they were, since I only brought them here to die. And yet, Father, they say that the earth of Comala is good. What a shame the land is all in the hands of one man. Pedro Peramo is still the owner, isn't he? That's God's will. I can't believe that the will of God has anything to do with it. You don't believe that, do you, Father? At times I have doubted, but they believe it in Comala. And are you among the they? I am just a man prepared to humble himself now while he has now while he has the impulse to do so. Later, when they said their goodbyes, Father Lenteria had taken the priest's hands and kissed them. Now that he was home and returned to reality, he did not want to think about the morning in Contla. He rose from the bench and walked to the door. Where are you going, Uncle? His niece Anna, always present, always by his side, as if she sought his shadow to protect to protect her from life. I'm going out to walk for a while, Anna, to blow off steam. Do you feel sick? Not sick, Anna. Bad. I feel that's what I am. A bad man. He walked to the Media Luna and offered his condolences to Pedro Pedamo. Again, he listened to his excuses for the charges made against his son. He let Pedro Pedamo talk. None of it mattered at all. On the other hand, he did decline his invitation to eat. I can't do that, Don Pedro. I have to be at the church early because of a long line of women are already waiting at the confessional. Another time. He walked home, then toward evening, went directly to the church, just as he was, bathed in dust and misery. He sat down to hear confessions. The first woman in line was old Dorotea, who was always waiting for the church doors to open. He smelled the odor of alcohol. What? Now you're drinking? How long have you been doing this? I went to Miguelito's wake, Padre, and I overdid it a little. They gave me so much to drink that I ended up acting like a clown. That's all you've ever done, Dorotea. But now I've come with my sins, Padre, sins to spare. On many occasions he had told her, Don't bother to confess, Dorotea. You'd be wasting my time. You couldn't commit a sin anymore, even if you tried. Leave that to others. I have now, Padre. It's the truth. Tell me. Since it can't do him any harm now, I can tell you that I'm the one who used to get the girls for the deceased, for Miguelito Piramo. Father Lenteria, stalling for time to think, seemed to emerge from his fog as he asked, almost from habit, For how long? ever since he was a boy, from the time he had the measles. Repeat to me what you just said, Dorotea. Well, that I was the one who rounded up Miguelito's girls. You took them to him? Sometimes I did, other times I just made the arrangements. And with some, all I did was head them in the right direction. You know, the hour when, when they would be alone, and when he could catch them unawares. Were there many? He hadn't meant to ask, but the question came out by force of habit. I'd lost count, lots and lots. What do you think I should do with you, Dorotea? You be the judge. Can you pardon what you've done? I can't, Padre, but you can. That's why I'm here. How many times have you come to ask me to send you to heaven when you die? You hoped to find your son there. You hoped to find your son there, didn't you, Dorotea? 
Well, you won't go to heaven now. May God forgive you. Thank you, Padre. Yes, and I forgive you in his name. You may go. Aren't you going to give me my penance? You don't need it, Dorotea. Thank you, Padre. Go with God. He rapped on the window of the confessional to summon another of the women. And while he listened to, I have sinned, his head slumped forward as if he could no longer hold it up. Then came the dizziness, the confusion, the slipping away as if it was syrupy water, the whirling of lights, the brilliance of the dying day was was splintering into sheds. And there was the taste of blood on his tongue. The I have sinned grew louder, was repeated again and again, for now and forevermore, for now and forevermore, for now. Quiet, woman, he said. When did you last confess? Two days ago, Padre. Yet she was back again. It was as if he were surrounded by misfortune. What are you doing here? He asked himself. Rest, go rest, you are very tired. He left the confessional and went straight to the sac- to the sacristy. Without a glance for the people waiting, he said, Any of you who feel you are without sin may take Holy Communion tomorrow. Behind him, as he left, he heard the murmuring. I am lying in the same bed where my mother died so long ago, on the same mattress beneath the same black wool coverlet she wrapped us in to sleep. I slept beside her, her little girl, in the special place she made for me in her arms. I can still feel the calm rhythm of her breathing, the palpitations and sighs that soothed my sleep. I think I feel the pain of her death, but that isn't true. Here I lie flat on my back, hoping to forget my loneliness by remembering those times, because I am not here just for a while, and I am not in my mother's bed, but in a black box like the ones for burying the dead, because I am dead. I sense where I am, but I can think. I think about the limes ripening, about the February wind that used to snap the fern stalks before they dried up from neglect, the ripe limes that filled the overgrown patio with their fragrance, the wind blew down from the mountains of February mornings, and the clouds gathered there waiting for the warm weather that would force them down into the valley. Meanwhile, the sky was blue, and the light played on little whirlwinds sweeping across the earth, swirling the dust and lashing the branches of the orange trees. The sparrows were sputtering. They pecked at the wooden-blown leaves and twittered. They left their feathers along the thorny branches and chased the butterflies and twittered. It was that season, February, when the mornings were filled with wind and sparrows and blue light. I remember... That is when my mother died. I should have wailed. I should have wrung my hands until they were bleeding. That is how you would have wanted it. But in fact, wasn't that a joyful morning? The breeze was blowing in through the open door, tearing loose the ivy tendrils. Hair was beginning to grow on the mound between my legs, and my hands trembled hotly when I touched my breasts. Sparrows were playing. Wheat was swaying on the hillside. I was sad that she would never again see the wind playing in the jasmines, that her eyes were closed to the bright sunlight, but why should I weep? Do you remember, Justina? You arranged the chairs in a row in the corridor where people who came to visit could wait their turn. They stood empty, 
My mother lay alone amid the candles, her face pale, her white teeth barely visible between purple lips frozen by the livid cold of death. Her eyelashes lay still. Her heart was still. You and I prayed interminable prayers she could not hear, that you and I could not hear above the roar of the wind in the night. You ironed her black dress, starched her collar and the cuffs of her sleeve so that her hands would look young, crossed upon her dead breasts, her exhausted loving breast that had once fed me, that had cradled me and throbbed as she crooned me to sleep. No one came to visit her. Better that way. Death is not to be parceled out as if it were a blessing. No one goes looking for sorrow. Someone banged on the door knocker. You went to the door. You go, I said. I see people through a haze. Tell them to go away. Have they come for money for the Gregorian masses? She didn't leave any money. Tell them that, Justina. She will have to stay in purgatory if they if they don't say those masses. Who are they to mete out justice, Justina? You think I'm crazy? That's fine. And your chair stood empty until we went to bury her, accompanied by the men we had hired, sweating under a stranger's weight, alien to our grief. They shoveled damp sand into the grave. They lowered the coffin slowly with the patience of their office and the breeze that cooled them after their labors, their eyes cold and different. They said, it'll be so much, and you paid them, the way you might buy something at the market, untidying the corner of the tear-soaked handkerchief you'd wrung out again and again, the one that now contained the money for the burial. And when they had gone away, you knelt on the spot above her face, and you kissed the ground, and you would have dug down toward her if I hadn't said, Let's go, Justina. She isn't here now. There is nothing here but a dead body. Was that you talking, Dorotea? Who, me? I was asleep for a while. Are you still afraid? I heard someone talking. A woman's voice. I thought it was you. A woman's voice? You thought it was me? It must be that woman who talks to herself. The one in the large tomb, Doña Susanita. She's buried close to us. The damp must have got to her and she's moving around in her sleep. Who is she? Pedro Peramo's last wife. Some say she was crazy. Some say not. The truth is that she talked to herself even when she was alive. She must have died a long time ago. Oh, yes, a long time ago. What did you hear her say? Something about her mother. But she didn't have a mother. Well, it was her mother she was talking about. Hmm. At least her mother wasn't with her when she came. Wait, wait a minute. I remember now. The mother was born here, and when she was getting along in years, they vanished. Yes, that's it. Her mother died of consumption. She was a strange woman who, who was always sick and never visited with anyone. That's what she was saying, that no one had come to visit her mother when she died. What did she mean? No wonder no one wanted to step inside her door. They were afraid of catching her disease. I wonder if the Indian woman remembers. She was talking about that. When you hear her again, let me know. I'd like to know what she's saying. You hear? I think she's about to say something. I hear a kind of murmuring. No, that isn't her. That's farther away in the other direction. And that's a man's voice. What happens with these corpses that have been dead a long time is that when the damp reaches them, they begin to stir. They wake up. 
the heavens are bountiful. God was with me that night. If not, who knows what might have happened because it was already night when I came too. You hear it better now? Yes, I was covered with blood. And when I tried to get up, my hand slipped in the puddles of blood in the rocks. It was my blood, buckets of blood, but I wasn't dead. I knew that. I knew that Don Pedro hadn't meant to kill me. Just give me a scare. He wanted to find out whether I'd been in Vilmayo the two years before on San Cristobal's day at the wedding. What wedding? With San Cristobal's? There I was, slipping around in my own blood, and I just asked him that. What wedding, Don Pedro? No, no, Don Pedro, I wasn't there. I may have been near there, but only by chance. He never meant to kill me. He left me lame. You didn't kill me. And, and sorry to say, without the use of my arm. But he didn't kill me. They say that ever since then, I've only had one wild eye from the scare. I tell you, though, it made me more of a man. The heavens are bountiful, and you don't ever doubt it. Who was that? How should I know? Any one of dozens, Pedro Peramo slaughtered so many folks after his father was murdered that he killed nearly everybody who attended that wedding. Don Lucas Peramo was supposed to give the bride away, and it was really by accident that he died because it was the bridegroom someone had a grudge against. And since they never found out who fired the bullet that struck him down, Pedro Peramo wiped out the lot. It happened over there in Belmayo, in Belmayo Ridge, where there used to be some houses you can't find any trace of now. Listen, now that sounds like her. Your ears are younger. You listen, and then you tell me what she says. I can't understand a thing. I don't think she's talking, just moaning. What's she moaning about? Well, who knows? It must be about something. No one moans just to be moaning. Try harder. She's moaning, just moaning. Maybe Pedro Peramo made her suffer. Don't you believe it? He loved her. I'm here to tell you that he never loved a woman like he loved that one. By the time they brought her to him, she was already suffering, maybe crazy. He loved her so much that after she died, he spent the rest of his days slumped in a chair, staring down the road where they carried her to holy ground. He lost interest in everything. He let his lands lie fallow and gave orders for the tools that worked it to be destroyed. Some say it was because he was worn out. Others said it was despair. The one sure thing is that he threw everyone off his land and sat himself down in his chair to stare down that road. From that day on, the fields lay untended, abandoned. It was a sad thing to see what happened to the land, how plagues took over as soon as it lay idle. For miles around, people fell on hard times. Men packed up and left in search of a better living. I remember days when the only sound in Gomala were goodbyes. It seemed like celebration every time we, we sent someone on his way. They went, you know, with every intention of coming back. They asked us to keep an eye on their belongings and their families. Later, some sent for their families, but not their things. And then they seemed to forget about the village and about us and even about their belongings. I stayed because I didn't have anywhere to go. Some stayed waiting for Pedro Peramo to die because he promised to leave them his land and his goods and they were living on that hope. But the years went by and he lived on, propped up like a scarecrow, gazing out across the lands of the Media Luna. And not before long, when he died, 
And not before he died, we had that, that Crisneros war and the troops drained off the few men we had left. That was when I really began to starve and, and things were never the same again. And all of it was Don Pedro's doing because of the turmoil of his soul, just because his wife, that Susanita, had died. So you tell me whether he loved her. It was Fulgor Sedano who told him, Petron, you know who's back in town? Who? Bartolome San Juan. How come? That's what I asked myself. Wonder why he's come back. Haven't you looked into it? No, I, I wanted to tell you first. He didn't inquire about a house. He went straight to your old place. He got off his horse and moved in his suitcases, just as you'd already rented it to him. He didn't seem to have any doubts. And what are you doing about it, Fulgor? Why haven't you found out what's going on? Isn't that what you're paid to do? It was a little, I was a little thrown off by what I had just told you, but tomorrow I'll find out if you think we should. Never mind about tomorrow. I'll look into San Juan's. Both of them came? Yes, him and his wife. But how did you know? Wasn't it his daughter? Well, the way he treats her, she seems more like his wife. Go home and go to bed, Fulgor, with your leave. I waited 30 years for you to return, Susanna. I wanted to have it all, not just part of it, but everything there was to have, to the point that there would be nothing left for us to want, no desire but your wishes. How many times did I ask your father to come back here to live, telling him I needed, I needed him. I even tried deceit. I offered to make him my administrator anything as long as I could see you again. And what did he answer? No response, the messenger always said. Signor Don Bartolome tears up at your letters as soon as I, he tears up your letters as soon as I hand them to him. But through that boy, I learned that you had married, and before long, I learned that you were a widow and had gone back to keep your father company. Then, silence. The messenger came and went, and each time he reported, I can't find them, Don Pedro. People say they have, they have left Mascota. Some say they went in one direction, and some say another. I told him, don't worry about the expense. Find them. They haven't been swallowed up by the earth. And then one day he came and told me. I've been all through the mountains searching for the place where Don Bartolome San Juan might be hiding, and at last I found him, a long way from here, holed up in a little hollow in the hills, living in a log hut on the site of the abandoned La Andromeda mines. Strange winds were blowing then. The, there were reports of armed rebellion. We heard rumors. Those were the winds that blew your father back here, not for his own sake, he wrote in his letter, but for your safety. He wanted to bring you back to civilization. I felt that the heavens were parting. I wanted to run to meet you, to envelop you with happiness, to weep with joy. And weep I did, Susanna, when I learned that you at last would return. Some villages have the smell of misfortune. You know them after one whiff of their stagnant air, stale and thin like everything old. This is one of those villages, Susanna. Back there, where we just came from, at least you could enjoy watching things being born, clouds and birds and moss. You remember? Here, there's nothing but that sour, yellowish odor that seems to seep up from the ground. This town is cursed, suffocated in misfortune. He wanted us to come back. He's given us his house. He's given us everything we need. But we don't have to be grateful to him. There is no blessing for us because our salvation is not to be found here. I feel it. Do you know what Pedro Piramo wants? 
I never imagined that he was giving us all this for nothing. I was ready to give him the benefit of my toil since we had to repay him somehow. I gave him all the details about La Andromeda and convinced him that the mine had promised and, and convinced him that the mine had promised if we worked it methodically. You know what he said? I'm not interested in your I'm not interested in your mind, Bartholomé San Juan. The only thing of yours I want is your daughter. She's your crowning achievement. He loves you, Susanna. He says you used to play together when you were children, that he knows you, that you used to swim together in the river when you were young. I didn't know that. If I'd had known, I would have beat you senseless. I'm sure you would. Did I hear what you said? I'm sure you would. You heard me. So you're prepared to go to bed with him? Yes, Bartolome. Don't you know that he's married and that he's had more women than you can count? Yes, Bartolome. And don't call me Bartolome. I'm your father. Bartolome San Juan, a dead miner. Susanna San Juan, daughter of a miner killed in the Andromeda mines. He saw it clearly. I must go there to die, he thought. Then he said, I've told him that although you're a widow, you are still living with your husband, or at least you act as if you are. I've tried to discourage him, but his gaze grows hard when I talk to him, and as soon as I mention your name, he closes his eyes. He is, I haven't a doubt of it, unmitigated evil. That's who don't that's who Pedro Peramo is. And who am I? You are my daughter, mine, the daughter of Botolome San Juan. Ideas began to form in Susanna San Juan's mind. Slowly at first, they retreated and then raced so fast she could only say, It isn't true. It isn't true. The world presses in on us from every side. It scatters fistfuls of our dust across the land and, and takes bits and pieces of us as if to water the earth with our blood. What did we do? Why have our souls rotted away? Your mother always said that at the very least we could count on God's mercy. Yet you deny it, Susanna. Why do you deny me as your father? Are you mad? Didn't you know? Are you mad? Of course I am, Bartolome. Don't you know? You know, of course, Fulgar, that she is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. I had come to believe I had lost her forever. I don't want to lose her again. You understand me, Fulgor? You tell her father to explore his minds, and there I imagine it wouldn't be too hard for an old man to disappear in a territory where no one ever ventures. Don't you agree? Maybe so. We need it to be so. She must be left without family. We're called on to look after those in need. You agree with that, don't you? I don't see any difficulty with that. Then get about it, Fulgor. Get on with it. And what if she finds out? Who's going to tell her? Let's see. Tell me, just between the two of us, who's going to tell her? No one, I guess. Forget that, I guess. Forget that as of now, and everything will work out fine. Will work out fine. Remember how much needs to be done at the Andromeda. Send the old man there to keep at it, to come and go as he pleases, but don't let him get the idea of taking his daughter. We'll look after her here. His work is there in the mines and, and his house is here anytime he wants it. Tell him that, Fulgor. I'd like to say once more that I like the way you do things, Petron. You seem to be getting your spirit back. Rain is falling on the fields of the Valley of Comala, a fine rain rare in these lands that know only downpours. It is Sunday. The Indians have come down from Apango with their rosaries of chamomile, their rosemary, their bunches of thyme. They have come without 
Okot pine because the wood is wet and without oak mulch because it too is wet from the long rain. They spread their herbs on the ground beneath the arches of the arcade and wait. The rain falls steadily, stripling the puddles. Rivers of water course among the furrows where the young maize is sprouting. The men have not come to the market today. They are busy breaching the rows so that the water will find new channels and not carry off the young crop. They move in groups, navigating the flooded fields beneath the rain, breaking up, breaking up soft clumps of soil with their spades, firming the shoots with their hands, trying to protect them so they will grow strong. The Indians wait. They feel this is an ill-fated day. That must be why they are trembling beneath their soaking wet gabanes, their straw capes, not from cold, but fear. They stare at the fine rain and at the sky hoarding its clouds. No one comes. The village seems uninhabited. A woman asks for a length of darning cotton and a packet of sugar, and if it is to be had, a sieve for straining cornmeal gruel. As the morning passes, the gabanis grow heavy with moisture. The Indians talk among themselves. They tell jokes and laugh. The chamomile leaves glisten with a misting of rain. They think if we'd only brought a little polke, it wouldn't matter. But the hearts of the magways are swimming in a sea of water. Well, what can you do? Beneath her umbrella, Justina Diaz makes her way down the straight road leading from the Media Luna, avoiding the streams of water gushing onto the sidewalks. As she passed the main entry to the church, she made the sign of the cross. She walked beneath the arches into the plaza. All the Indians turned to watch her. She felt their eyes upon her as if she were under intense scrutiny. She stopped at the first display of herbs, brought 10 centavos worth of rosemary, and then retraced her steps, followed by countless pairs of Indian eyes. Everything costs so much this time of year, she thought as she walked back toward Media Luna. This pitiful little rosemary for 10 centavos is barely enough to give off a cent. Toward dusk, the Indians rolled up their wares. They walked into the rain with their heavy packs on their backs. They stopped by the church to pray to the Virgin, leaving a bunch of time as an offering. Then they set off toward a pango on their way home. Another day, they said, and they walked down the road telling jokes and laughing. Justina Diaz went to Susana San Juan's bedroom and set the rosemary on a small shelf. The closed curtains blocked out the light so that she only saw the shadows in the darkness. She merely guessed at what she was singing. She supposed that Susanna San Juan was asleep. She wished that she did nothing but sleep, and as she was sleeping now, Justina was content. But then she heard a sigh that seemed to come from a far corner of a darkened room. Justina, someone called. She looked around. She couldn't see anyone, but she felt a hand on her shoulder and a breath against her ear. A secretive voice said, go away, Justina, bundle up your things and leave. We don't need you anymore. She needs me, she replied, standing straighter. She's sick and she needs me. Not anymore, Justina. I will stay here and take care of her. Is that you, Don Bartolome? But she did not wait for the answer. She screamed a scream that reached the ears of men and women returning from the fields, a cry that caused them to say, that sounded like someone screaming, but it can't be human. The rain deadens sounds. It can be heard when all other sound is stifled, flinging its icy drops, spinning the thread of life. What's the matter, Justina? Why did you just scream? Susanna San Juan asked. 
I didn't scream, Susanna. You must have been dreaming. I've told you I never dream. You have no consideration. I scarcely slept a wink. You didn't put the cat out last night, and it kept me awake. It slept with me, between my legs. It got wet, and I felt sorry for it and let it stay in my bed. But it didn't make any noise. No, it, it didn't make any noise, but it spent the night like a circus cat, leaping from my feet to my head and meowing softly as if it were hungry. I fed it well, and it never left my bed all night. You've been dreaming lies again, Susanna. I tell you, it kept startling me all night with this leaping about. Your cat may be very affectionate, but I don't want it around when I'm sleeping. You're seeing things, Susanna. That's, that's what it is. When Pedro Peramo comes, I'm going to tell him that I can't put up with you any longer. I'll tell him I'm leaving. There are plenty of nice people who will give me work. Not all of them are crazy like you or, or enjoy humiliate, humiliating a person the way you do. Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving, and I'll take my cat and leave you in peace. You won't leave, you perverse and wicked Justina. You're not going anywhere because you will never find anyone who loves you the way I do. No, I won't leave, Susanna. I won't leave. You know, I will take care of you. Even though you make me swear I won't, I will always take care of you. She had cared for Susanna from the day she was born. She had held her in her arms. She had taught her to walk, to take those first steps that seemed eternal. She had watched her lips and eyes grow sweet as sugar candy. Mint candy is blue, yellow and blue, green and blue stirred with spearmint and wintergreen. She nibbled at her chubby legs. She entertained her by offering her a breast to nurse that had no milk. That was only a toy. Play with this, she told Susanna. Play with your own little toy. She could have hugged her to pieces. Outside, rain was falling on the banana leaves and the water in the puddle sounded as if it was boiling. The sheets were cold and damp. The drain pipes gurgled and foamed, weary of laboring day and night, night and day. Water kept pouring down, streaming in diluvial burbling. It was midnight. Outside, the sound of the rain blotted out all other sounds. Susanna San Juan woke early. She sat up slowly, then got out of bed. Again, she felt the weight in her feet, a heaviness rising up her body, trying to reach her head. Is that you, Bartolome? She thought she heard the door squeak as if someone were entering or leaving, and then only the rain, intermittent cold, rolling down the banana leaves, boiling in its own ferment. She slept again and did not wake until light was falling on red bricks, beaded with moisture in the gray dawn of a new day. She called, Justina? Justina, throwing a shawl around her shoulders, appeared immediately as if she had been right outside the door. What is it, Susanna? The cat. The cat's in here again. My poor Susanna. She laid her head on Susanna's breast and hugged her until Susanna lifted her head and asked, Why are you crying? I'll tell Pedro Panamo how good you are to me. I won't tell him anything about how your cat frightens me. Don't cry, Justina. Your father's dead, Susanna. He died night before last. They came today to say there's nothing we can do. They've already buried him. It was too far to bring his body back here. You're all, you're all alone now, Susanna. Then it was father, Susanna smiled, so he came to tell me goodbye, said Susanna, and smiled. Many years earlier, when she was just a little girl, he had said one day, climb down, Susanna, and tell me what you see. She was dangling from a rope that cut into her waist and rubbed her hands raw, but she didn't want to let go. The rope was the single thread connecting her to the world outside. 
If you didn't realize it, this is a totally free podcast. How does Carla do it? Well, she loves to read the classics, but we all could use a little help now and then. So if you'd like to show your appreciation, any small donation would be appreciated. Visit anchor.fm slash Carla 3507 or cash app dollar sign Jess TSM. I don't see anything, Papa. Look hard, Susanna. See if you don't see something. And he shone the lamp on her. I don't see anything, Papa. I'll lower you a little farther. Let me know when you're on the bottom. She had entered through a small opening a small opening in some boards. She had walked over rotted, decaying, splintered planks covered with clayey soil. Go a little lower, Susanna, and you'll find what I told you. She bumped lower and lower, swaying in the darkness with her feet swinging in empty space. Lower, Susanna, a little lower. Tell me if you see anything. And when she felt the ground beneath her feet, she stood there dumb with fear. The lamplight circled above her and then focused on a spot beside her. The yell from above made her shiver. Hand me that, Susanna. She picked up the skull in both hands, but when the light struck it fully, she dropped it. It's a dead man's skull, she said. You should find something else there beside it. Hand me whatever's there. The skeleton broke into individual bones. The jawbone fell away as if it were sugar. She handed it up to him, piece after piece, down to the toes, which she handed him joint by joint. The skull had been first, the round ball that had disintegrated in her hands. Keep looking, Susanna, for money, round gold coins. Look everywhere, Susanna. And then she did not remember anything until days later she came into the ice in the ice of her father's glare. That was why she was laughing now. I knew it was you, Bartholomew. And poor Justina, weeping on Susanna's bosom, sat up to see what she was laughing about and why her laughter had turned into wild guffaws. Outside, it was still raining. The Indians had gone. It was Monday, and the valley of Comala was drowning in rain. The winds continued to blow day after day. The winds that had brought the rain, the rain was over, but the wind remained. There in the fields, tender leaves, dry now, lay flat against the furrows, escaping the wind. By day, the wind was bearable. It worried the ivy and rattled the roof tiles, but by night, it moaned. It moaned without ceasing. Canopies of clouds swept silently across the sky, so low they seemed to scrape the earth. Susanna San Juan heard the wind lashing against the closed window. She was lying with her arms crossed behind her head, thinking, listening to the night noises, how the night was buffeted by bursts of restless wind. Then the abrupt sensation. Someone has opened the door. A rush of air blows out the lamp. She sees only darkness and conscious through it suspended, and conscious though, and conscious thought, pardon me, is suspended. She hears faint rustlings. The next moment, she hears the erratic beating of her heart. Through closed eyelids, she senses the flame of light. She does not open her eyes. Her hair spills across her face. The light fires drops of sweat on her upper lip. She asks, Is that you, father? Yes, I am your father, my child. She peers through half-closed eyelids. Her hair seems to be cloaking a shadowy figure, on the ceiling, its head looming above her face. Through the gaze of her eyelashes, a blurred figure takes form. 
a diffused light burns in the place of, of its heart, a tiny heart pulsing like a flickering flame. Your heart is dying of pain, Susanna thinks. I know that you have come to tell me Florenko is dead, but I already know that. Don't be sad about anything else. Don't worry about me. I keep my grief hidden in a safe place. Don't let your heart go out. She got out of bed and dragged herself toward Father Denteria. Let me console you, he said, protecting the flame of the candle with his cupped hand. Console you with my own inconsolable sorrow. Father Rentidia watched as she approached him and encircled the light flame with her hands, and then she lowered her face to the burning wick until the smell of burning flesh forced him to jerk the candle away and blow out the flame. Again, in darkness, Susanna ran to hide beneath the sheets. Father Renteria said, I have come to comfort you, daughter. Then you may go, father, she replied. Don't come back. I don't need you. As she was listening to the retreating footsteps that had always left a sensation of cold and fear, why do you come see me when you are dead? Father Renteria closed the door and stepped out into the night air. The wind continued to blow. A man they called Er Tomatado came to Media Luna to ask for Pedro Perama. Why do you want to see him? I want to, to talk with him. He isn't here. To tell him when he comes back that it's about de Don Fulgor. I'll go look for him, but you may have to wait a while. To tell him it's uh, urgent. I'll tell him. El Tartamundo waited without dismounting from his horse. After a while, Pedro Peramo, whom El Tamatundo had never seen, came up and asked, What can I do for you? I need to, to talk directly to the patron. I am the patron. What do you want? Well, well just this. They've m murdered Don Fulgor Sedano. I was w with him. We'd written to the spillways to find out wh why the water had dried up, and wh while we were doing that, a band of m men came riding toward us, and wh one of them yelled, I n n know him. He's the foreman of the M Media Luna. Th they ignored me, but they t t told Don Fulgor to get off his horse. They s s they were revolutionaries, and that that they wanted your land to, to take off, they told Don Fulgor. R run, tell your patron to be expecting us. And he s started off s scared as hell, not too fast because he's, he's so fat, but he ran. They sh shot him as he ran. He d d died on, on foot in the air and with one foot in the air and one on the ground. I didn't move a hair. I waited for night, and here I am to, to tell you what happened. Well, what are you hanging around for? Get on your way. Go tell those men that I am here anytime they want to see me. I'll deal with them. But first, ride by La Casgracion Ranch. You know El Tucute? He'll be there. Tell him I need to see him. And tell those men I'll expect them first opportunity. What brand of revolutionaries are they? I don't know. Th th that's why they called. Th that's what they could call themselves. Tell El Tucuate that I need him here yesterday. I w w will, Patron. Pedro Peramo again closed the door to his office. He felt old and weary. He lost no time worrying about Fulgor, who'd been, after all, more of the next world than this. He'd given all he had to give. He could be useful, though no more than any other man. 
But those dumb bastards have never run into a boa constrictor like El Ducate, he thought. And then his thoughts turned to, to Susanna San Juan, always in her room, sleeping, or if not sleeping, pretending to be. He had spent the whole night in her room, standing against the wall, observing her in the wan candlelight, sweaty face, hands fidgeting with the sheets and tugging at her pillow until it was in shreds. Ever since he had brought her to live with him, every night had been like this, night spent watching her suffering, her endless agitation. He asked himself how long it would go on. He hoped not long. Nothing can last forever. There is no memory, however intense, that does not fade. If only he knew what was tormenting her, what made her toss and turn in her sleeplessness until it seemed that she was being torn apart inside. He had thought he knew her, but even when he found he didn't, wasn't it enough to know that she was the person he loved most on this earth? And, and this is what mattered most, that because of her, he would leave this earth illuminated by the image that erased all other memories. But what world was Susana San Juan living in? That was one of the things Pedro Peramo would never know. The warm sand felt so good against my body. My eyes were closed, my arms flung wide, and my legs open to the breeze from the sea. The sea there before me, stretching toward the horizon, leaving its foam on my feet as the waves washed in. Now that's her talking, Juan Preciado. Don't forget to tell me what she says. It was early morning. The sea rose and fell. It slipped from its foam and raced away in clean, green, silent waves. I always swim naked in the sea, I told him, and he followed me that day, naked too, phosphorescent as he walked from the sea. There were no gulls, only those birds they call sword beaks that grunt as if they're snoring and disappear once the sun is up. He followed me that first day. He felt lonely even though I was there. He might just as well be one of the birds. He said, I like you better at night when we're lying on the same pillow beneath the same sheets in the darkness. He went away. I went back. I would always go back. The sea bathes my ankles and retreats. It bathes my knees, my thighs, and puts its, its gentle arm around my waist, circles my breasts, embraces my throat, presses my shoulders. Then I sink into it, my whole body. I give myself to its pulsing strength, to its gentle possession, holding nothing back. I love to swim in the sea. I told him, but he didn't understand, and the next morning I was again in the sea purifying myself, giving myself to the waves. As dusk fell, the men appeared. They were carrying carbines and cartridges belts crisscrossed their chests. They were There were about 20 of them. Pedro Peramo invited the men to eat without removing their sombreros or uttering a word. They sat down at the table and waited. The only sounds came as they drank their chocolate and ate repeated servings of tortillas and beans. Pedro Peramo watched them. These were not faces he knew. El Tucuate stood right behind them in the shadows. Senores, said Pedro Peramo when he saw they were through, what else can I do for you? You own all this? One of them asked with a sweeping gesture. But another man interrupted. I do the talking here. All right, what, what can I do for you? Pedro Peramo repeated. Like you see, we've taken up arms and, and nothing. That's it. Isn't that enough? But why have you done it? Well, because others have done the same. Didn't you know? 
Hang on a little till we get our instructions, and then we'll tell you why. For now, we're just here. I know why, another said, and if you want, I'll tell you. We've rebelled against the government and against people like you because we're tired of putting up with you. Everyone in government is a crook, and you and your kind are nothing but a bunch of low-down bandits and slick thieves. And as for the governor, and as for the governor himself, I won't say anything because what have we to say to him? We'll say with bullets. What we have to say to him, we'll say with bullets. How much do you need for your revolution? Pedro Peramo asked. Maybe I can help you. The senor is talking sense. Preservancio. You shouldn't let your tongue run on like that. We need to get us a rich man to help us get outfitted, and who better than this senor here? Casildo, how much do we need? Well, whatever the senor fe feels he can give us. What? This man wouldn't throw a crumb to a starving man. Now that we're here, we ought to grab our chance and take everything he's got, right down to the last scrap of food stuffed in his filthy mouth. Easy now, Perservancio. You catch more flies with sugar than with vinegar. We can make a deal here. How much, Casildo? Well, I figure off the top of my head that 20,000 pesos wouldn't be too bad a starter. What do the rest of you think? Now, who knows but what our senor here could do a little more so he's willing to help us. So let's say 50,000. How does that strike you? I'll give you a hundred thousand, Pedro Pedamo told them. How many of you are there? I'd say three hundred. All right, I'm going to lend you another three hundred men to beef up your contingent. Within a week, you'll have both men and money at your disposal. I'm giving you the money. The men are just alone. As soon as you're through with them, send them back here. Is that a bargain? You bet. So, until a week from now, senores, it's been a pleasure to meet you. All right said the last to leave. But remember, if you don't live up to your word, you'll hear from Perservancio, and that's me. Pedro Piramo shook the man's hand, and he left. Which one of them do you think is the leader? He asked El Tilcuate after they'd gone. Well, I think maybe the one in the middle, the one with the big belly who never even looked up. I have a feeling he's the one. I'm not often wrong, Don Pedro. You are this time, Damasio. You're the leader. Or would you rather not get tied up in this revolution? Well, I have been a little slow getting into it, considering how much I like a good scrap. You have an idea what this, what this is all about, so you don't need my advice. Get yourself 300 men you can trust and sign up with these rebels. Tell them you're bringing the men I promised them. You'll know how to take care of the rest. And what do I tell them about the money? Do I hand that over too? I'll give you 10 pesos for each man, just enough for their most pressing needs. You tell them I'm keeping the rest here for them. That isn't a good idea to haul so much money around in times like these. By the way, how would you like that little rancho over in Puerta La Piedra? Fine. It's yours as of this minute. Take this note to my lawyer in Comala, old Gerardo Trujillo, and he'll put the property in your name then and there. How does that sound, Damasio? No need to ask, Petron, though I'd be happy to do this with or without the rancho just for the hell of it. You know me. At any rate, I'm grateful to you. My old woman will have something to keep her busy while I'm off roaming around. And look, while you're at it, round up a few head of cattle. What that rancho needs is a little activity. Would you mind if I took Brahma's? 
Choose any you want. Your wife can look after them. Now, to get back to our business, try not to get too far away from my land so that when anyone comes, they'll find men already here. And come by whenever you can or when you have news. Be seeing you, Petro. What is, what is it she's saying, Juan Preciado? She's saying she used to hide her feet between his legs, feet icy as cold stones, and that he warmed them like bread baking in the oven. She says he nibbled her feet, saying they were like golden loaves from the oven, and that she slept cuddled close to him inside his skin, lost in nothingness as she felt her flesh part like a furrow turned by a plow, first burning, then warm and gentle, thrusting against her soft flesh deeper, deeper, until she cried out. But she always says his death hurt her so much more. That's what she said. Whose death does she mean? Must have been someone who died before she did, but who could it have been? I don't know. She says that night he was late coming home. She felt sure he'd come back very late, maybe about dawn. She thought that because her poor cold feet as if they'd been her felt as if they had been wrapped in something, as if someone had covered them and warmed them. When she woke up and found that her feet were under the newspaper she had been reading while while she was waiting for him, although the paper had fallen to the floor when she couldn't stay awake any longer, her feet were wrapped in it when they came to tell her that he was dead. The box they they buried her in must have split open because I hear something like boards creaking. Yes, I, I hear it too. That night she had the dreams again. Why such intense remembering of so many things? Why not simply his death instead of this tender music from the past? Florencio is dead, senora. How big, how big the man was, how tall, and how hard his voice was, dry as the driest dirt. She couldn't see his body clearly or had it become blurred in memory. And as if rain were falling between them, what was it he had, what was it he had said, Florencio? What Florencio? Mine? Oh, oh, why didn't I weep then and drown myself in tears to wash away my anguish? Oh, God, you are not in your heaven. I asked you to protect him, to look after him. I asked that of you. But all you care about is souls. And what I want is his body, naked and hot with love, boiling with desire, stroking my trembling breasts and arms, my transparent body suspended from his, my lustful body held and released by his strength. What shall I do now with my lips without his to cover them? What shall become of my poor lips? While Susana San Juan tossed and turned, Pedro Peramo, standing by the door, watched her and counted the seconds of this long new dream. The oil in the lamp sputtered and the flame flickered and grew weaker. Soon it would go out. If only there were suffering pain and not these re- and not these relentless, interminable, exhausting dreams, he could find some way to comfort her. Those were Pedro, Pedro Peramo's thoughts as he stood watching Susana San Juan, following her every movement. What would he do if she died like the flame of the pale light that allowed him to watch her? He left the room noiselessly, closing the door behind him. Outside, the cool night air erased Susanna San Juan's image from his mind. Just before dawn, Susanna awakened. She was sweating. She threw the heavy covers to the floor and freed herself of the heat of the sheets. She was naked, cooled by the early morning air. She sighed and then fell back to sleep. 
That was how Father and Didia found her hours later, naked and sleeping. Have you heard, Don Pedro? They got the best El. They got the best of El Ducuate. I knew there was shouting last night because I could hear the racket, but that's all I knew. Who told you this, Girardo? Some of the wounded made it to Gomala. My wife helped bandage them. They said they'd been with Damasio and that a lot of men died. Seems like they met up with some men who called themselves Villistas. Good God, Gerardo, I see bad times ahead. What do you plan to do? I'm leaving, Don Pedro. For Sayula, I'll start over there. Your lawyers have the advantage. You can take your fortune with you anywhere as long as they don't knock you off. Don't you believe it, Don Pedro? We have our problems. Besides, it hurts to leave people like you. All your courtesies will be sorely missed. It's fair to say that our world our world is constantly changing. Where would you like me to leave your papers? Don't leave them. Take them with you, or you won't be able to look after my affairs where you're going. I appreciate your confidence, Don Pedro. Truly, I do, although I venture to say that it won't be possible for me to continue. Certain irregularities, let's say, information no one but you should have. Your papers could be put to bad use if they fell into the wrong hands. The surest thing would be to leave them with you. You're right, Gerardo. Leave them here. I'll burn them. With papers or without them, who's going to argue with me over my property? No one. I'm sure of that, Don Pedro. No one. Now I must be going. Go with God, Gerardo. What did you say? I said, may God be with you. Gerardo Trujillo, lawyer, left very slowly. He was old, but not so old as he had to walk so haltingly, so reluctantly. The truth was that he had expected a reward. He had served Don Lucas, might he rest in peace, Don Pedro's father, then, and up until now, Don Pedro, even Miguel, Don Pedro's son. The truth was that he was expecting some recognition, a large and welcome return for his services. He had told his wife, I'm going over to tell Don Pedro I'm leaving. I know he'll want to thank me. Let me say that with the money he gives me, we can establish ourselves in Sayula and live in comfort for the rest of our days. But why is it that women always have doubts? What is it anyway? Do they receive their information from on high? His wife had not been at all sure he would be rewarded. You'll have to work like a dog to keep your head above water. You won't get anything from him. Why do you say that? I just know. He was still walking toward the front door, listening for a sudden summons. Oh, Gerardo, I've been so preoccupied that I wasn't thinking straight. You know I owe you favors that can't be repaid with money. Here, take this, a small thank you. But the summons never came. He left through the front entrance and untied his horse from the hitching post. He mounted and slowly started and slowly started back toward Comala, trying not to ride out of earshot in case anyone called. When he realized that the media Luna had faded from sight, he thought, what a terrible come down it would be to ask for a loan. Don Pedro, I Don Pedro, I've come back because I'm not happy with myself. I'd be pleased to continue to look after your affairs. He was again sitting in Pedro Peramos's office, which he'd left less than half an hour before. Fine with me, Gerardo. Here are the papers right where you left them. I'd also appreciate my expenses moving, a small advance on my fees, and a little something extra if that seems all right. Five hundred? Couldn't we make it a little, well, just a little more? 
Will a thousand do? How about five? Five what? Five thousand pesos. I don't have that much. You of all people know that everything I have is tied up. Land, cattle, you know that. Take a thousand, that's all you need. Trujillo sat thinking with his head on his chest. He heard pesos clinking on the desk where Pedro Peramo was counting the money. He was remembering Don Lucas, who had always put off paying his fees, and Don Pedro, who'd started with a clean slate, and his son, Miguel, what a lot of trouble that boy had caused. He had got him out of jail at least 15 times, if not more, and there was the time he'd murdered that man. What was his name? Rentiria. Yes, that was it. They'd put a pistol in the corpse's hand. Miguelito's been had been scared to death. He, he he thought he'd laugh about it later. How much would just that one time have cost Don Pedro if things had moved ahead to legal proceedings? And what about all the rates, eh? Think of all the times he'd taken money from his own pocket to keep the girls quiet. You should be thankful, he told them, that you'll be having a fair-skinned baby. Here you are, Gerardo. Take good care of this because money doesn't grow on trees. And Trujillo, who was still deep in his meditations, replied, just like dead men don't spring up from their graves. It was a long time till dawn. The sky was filled with fat stars swollen from the long night. The moon had risen briefly and then slipped out of sight. It was one of those sad moons that no one looks at or pays attention to. It had hung there a while, misshapen, not shedding any light, and then gone to hide behind the hills. From far away, shrouded in darkness, came the bellowing of bulls. Those creatures never sleep, said Damiana Cisneros. They never sleep. They're like the devil who's always out looking for souls to spirit away. She turned over in bed, putting her face close to the wall. That was when she heard the knocking. She held her breath and opened her eyes. Again, she heard three sharp taps as if someone were rapping on the wall. Not right beside her, but farther away, although on the same wall. Heaven help us. It must have been San Pasqual, tapping three times as warning to one of his faithful that the hour has come. Since she had made a novena for so long because of her rheumatism, she didn't worry, but she was afraid and even more than afraid, curious. She quietly got up from her cot and peered out the window. The fields were black, even so she knew the landscape so well that she could see the large mass of Pedro Piramo's body swinging into the window of young Margarita. Oh, that Don Pedro, said Damiana. He never gets over chast he never gets over chasing the girls. What I don't understand is why he insists on doing things on the sly. If he'd just let me know, I would have told Margarita that the patron had needed her for tonight, and he wouldn't have had to bother of leaving his bed. She closed the windows when she heard the bull still bellowing. She lay down on her cot and pulled the cover up over her ears, and then lay there thinking about what's, what must be happening to young Margarita. A little later, she got up to strip off her nightgown because the night seemed to have turned hot. Damiana, she heard, and she was a girl again. Open the door, Damiana. Her heart had leapt like a toad hopping beneath her ribs. But why, Petron? Open up, Damiana. But I'm fast asleep, Petron. Then she had heard Don Pedro stalking off down the long corridor, his heels clicking loudly as they did when he was angry. 
The next night, to avoid angering him again, she left the door ajar and even went to bed naked to make things easy for him. But Pedro Beramo had never returned. And so tonight, now that she was the head of all of Media Luna's servants and was old and had earned her respect, she still thought of that night when the patron had called, Open the door, Damiana! And she fell asleep thinking how happy young Margarita must be at this hour. Later, she again heard knocking, but this time at the main door, as if someone were trying to beat it down with the butt of a gun. A second time, she opened the window and looked out into the night. She saw nothing, although it seemed to her that the earth was steaming as it does after a rain, when the earth is roiling with worms. She could sense something rising, something like the heat of many men. She heard frogs croaking and crickets, a quiet night in the rainy season. Then once again, she heard the pounding at the door. A lamp spilled its light on the faces of a band of men. Then it went out. These things have nothing to do with me, said Damiana Cisneros, and closed her window. I heard you got your tail whipped, Damasio. Why did you let that happen? You got the wrong story, patron. Nothing happened to me. I didn't lose a man. I have seven hundred of my own and a few hundred tagalongs. What happened was that a few of the old timers got bored with not seeing any action and started firing at the patrol of shaveheads who turned out to be a whole army. Those velistas, you know. Where had they come from? From the north, leveling everything they found in their path. It seems, as far as we can make out, that they're riding all through here getting the lay of the land. They're powerful. You can't take that from them. Well, why don't you join up with them? I've told you before, we have to be on the side of whoever's winning. I've already done it. Then why are you here? We need money, Patron. We're tired of eating nothing but meat. We don't have a taste for it anymore, and no one wants to give us credit. That's why we've come, hoping you can buy us provisions, and we won't have to steal from anyone. If I were away off somewhere, we wouldn't mind borrowing a little from the locals, but everyone around here is a relative, and we'd feel bad robbing them. It's money we need to buy food, even if only a few tortillas and chilies. We're sick of meat. So now you're making demands on me, Damasio. Oh, no, Petro. I'm speaking for the boys. I don't want nothing for myself. It speaks well for you that you're looking out for your men, but go somewhere else to get what you need. I've already given you money. Be happy with what you've got. Now, I don't want to offer this as advice, but haven't you thought of riding on Contla? Why do you think you're fighting a revolution? Only a dunce would be asking for handouts. You may as well go home and help your wife look after the hens. Go raid some town. You're risking your skin. So why the hell don't others do their part? Contla is crawling with rich men. Take a little out of their hides, or maybe you think you're their nursemaid and have to look after their interests. No, Damasio? Show them that you're not just out for a good time. Rub them up a little, and the centavos will flow. I'll do like you say, Petron. I can always count on your good advice. Well, make good use of it. Pedro Peramo watched as the men rode away. He could hear horses trotting past, invisible in the darkness, sweat and dust, trembling earth. When the light of the fireflies again dotted the sky, he knew all the men had left. Only he remained alone like a sturdy tree beginning to rot inside. He thought of Susana San Juan. He thought of the young girl he had just slept with, of the small, frightened, trembling body and the thudding of a heart that seemed about to leap from her chest. 
you sweet little handful, he said to her, and embraced her, trying to transform her into Susanna San Juan, a woman who is not of this world. As dawn breaks, the day turns, stopping and starting. The rusty gears of the earth are almost audible, the vibration of this ancient earth overturning darkness. Is it true that the night is filled with sins, Justina? Yes, Susanna. Really true? It must be, Susanna. And what do you think life is, Justina, if not sin? Don't you hear? Don't you hear how the earth is cracking? No, Susanna, I, I can't hear anything. My fate is not as grand as yours. You would be frightened. I'm telling you, you would be frightened if you heard what I hear. Justina went on cleaning the room. Again and again, she passed the rag over the wet floorboards. She cleaned up the water from the shattered vase. She picked up the flowers. She put the broken pieces into the pail. How many birds have you killed in your lifetime, Justina? Many, Susanna. And you never felt sad? I did, Susanna. Then what are you waiting for to die? I'm waiting for death, Susanna. It's, is that all? If it, it will come, don't worry. Susanna San Juan was sitting propped up against her pillows, her uneasy eyes searching every corner. Her hands were clasped over her belly like a protective shell. A humming like wings sounded above her head, and the creaking of the pulley in the well, the sounds of people waking up. Do you believe in hell, Justina? Yes, Susanna, and heaven too. I only believe in hell, Susanna said, and closed her eyes. When Justina left the room, Susanna San Juan fell asleep again, while outside the sun sparkled. Justina met Pedro Peramo in the hall. How is the senora? Bad, he replied, ducking her head. She replied, ducking her head. Is she complaining? No, senor, she doesn't complain about anything. But they say the dead never complain. The senora is lost to us all. Has Father Enteria been to see her? He came last night to hear her confession. She should have taken communion today, but she must not be in the state of grace because Padre Enteria hasn't brought it. He said he'd be here early, but you see the sun's up and he still hasn't come. She must not be in a state of grace. Whose grace? God's grace, senor. Don't be silly, Justina. As you say, senor. Pedro Peramo opened the door and stood beside it, letting a ray of light fall upon Susana San Juan. He saw eyes pressed tightly shut as if in pain, a moist, half-open mouth, sheets thrown back in sentient hands to reveal the nakedness of a body beginning to twist and turn in convulsions. He rushed across a brief space separating him from the bed and covered the naked body, writhing like a worm in more and more violent contortions. He spoke into her ear. Susanna, he repeated. Susanna. The door opened and Father Nanteria entered quietly, saying only, I've come to give you communion, my child. He waited until Pedro Peramo helped her sit up and arranged her pillows against the headboard. Susanna San Juan, still half asleep, held out her tongue and swallowed the host. Then she said, We had a glorious day, Florencio, and sank back down into the tomb of her sheets. You see that window, Doña Fiosta, there at Media Luna, where the light is always on? 
No, Angelus, I don't see any window. That's because the room is dark now. Don't you think that means something bad is going on over there? There's been a light in that window for more than three years, night after night. People who've been there say it's the room of Pedro Peramo's wife, a poor crazy woman who's afraid of the dark. And look, now the light's out. Isn't that a bad sign? Maybe she died. She's been real sick. They say she doesn't know people anymore and that she talks to herself. It's a fitting punishment for Pedro Penamo being married to that woman. Poor Don Pedro. No, Fausta. He deserves it. That and more. See, the window is still dark. Just let the window be and let's go home to bed. It's late for two old women like us to be out roaming the streets. And the two women who had left the church about eleven disappeared beneath the arches of the arcade, watching the shadows of a man crossing the plaza in the direction of the Media Luna. Look, Doña Fausta, do you see that man over there? Is a doc is that Dr. Valencia? It looks like him, although I'm so blind I wouldn't recognize him if he was right in front of me. But you remember he always wears those white pants and a black coat. I'll bet something bad is happening at the Media Luna. Look how fast he's walking as if he had a real reason to hurry. Which makes me think it's really serious. I feel like I ought to go by and tell Padre Renteria to get out there. That poor woman shouldn't die without confessing. God forbid, Angelus, what a terrible thought. After all, she suffered in this world. No one would want her to go without the last rites and then suffer forever in the next life. Although the psychics always say that crazy people don't need to confess, that even if they have sin in their soul, they're innocence. God only knows. Look, now the light's back on in the window. I hope everything turns out all right. If someone dies in that house, imagine what would happen to all the work we've done to decorate the church for Christmas. As important as Don Pedro is, our celebration would go right up in smoke. You always think the worst, Doña Fausta. You should do what I do. Put everything in the hands of divine providence. Say to Ave Maria to the Virgin, and I'm sure nothing will go wrong between now and morning. And then let God's will be done. After all, she can be very happy in this life. Believe me, Angelus, I always take comfort from what you say. I can go to sleep with those good thoughts on my mind. They say that our sleeping thoughts go straight to heaven. I hope mine make it that far. I'll see you tomorrow. Until tomorrow, Fausta. The two old women slipped through the half-open doors of their homes, and the silence of the night fell over the village. My mouth is filled with earth. Yes, Father. Don't say, yes, Father. Repeat with me the words I am saying. What are you going to say? You want me to confess again? Why again? This isn't a confession, Susanna. I've just come to talk with you, to prepare you for death. I'm going to die? Yes, daughter. Then why don't you leave me in peace? I want to rest. Someone must have told you to come keep me awake, to stay with me until sleep is gone forever. Then what can I do to find him? Nothing, father. Why don't you just go away and leave me alone? I will leave you in peace, Susanna. As you repeat the words I tell you, you will drift off as if you were crooning yourself to sleep. And once you are asleep, no one will wake you. No one will ever wake you again. All right, Father, I will do what you say. Father Rentenia, seated on the edge of the bed, his hands on Susanna San Juan's shoulders, his mouth almost touching her ear to keep from being overheard, formed each word in a secretive whisper. My mouth is filled with earth. Then he paused. He looked to see whether her lips were moving. He saw her mouthing the words, though no sound emerged. 
My mouth is filled with you, with my mouth, your tightly closed lips pressing hard, biting into mine. She too paused. She looked at Father Dunteria from the corner of her eye. He seemed far away, as if behind a mystic glass. Again, she heard his voice warm in her ear. I swallow foamy saliva. I chew clumps of dirt crawling with worms that knot in my throat and push against the roof of my mouth. My mouth caves in, contorted, lacerated by gnawing, devouring teeth. My nose grows spongy. My eyeballs liquefy. My hair burns in a single bright blaze. He was surprised by Susanna San Juan's calm. He wished he could divine her thoughts and see her heart struggling to reject the images he was sowing within her. He looked into her eyes and she returned his gaze. It seemed as if her twitching lips were forming a slight smile. There is more, the vision of God, the soft light of his infinite heaven, the rejoicing of the cherubim and song of the seraphim. The joy in the eyes of God, which is the last fleeting vision of, of those condemned to eternal suffering, eternal suffering joined to earthly pain. The marrow of our bones becomes like live coals and the blood in our veins, threads of fire inflicting unbelievable agony that never abates, for it is spanned constantly by the wrath of God. He sheltered me in his arms. He gave me love. Father Renteria glanced at the figures gathered around him, waiting for the last moment. Pedro Peramo waited by the door with crossed arms. Dr. Valencia and other men stood beside him. Farther back in the shadows, a small group of women eager to begin the prayer for the dead. He meant to rise, to anoint the dying woman with the holy oils and say, I have finished. But no, he hadn't finished yet. He could not administer the sacraments to this woman without knowing the measure of her repentance. He hesitated. Perhaps she had nothing to repent of. Maybe there was nothing for him to pardon. He bent over her once more and said in a low voice, shaking her by the shoulders, You are going into the presence of God, and he is cruel in his judgment of sinners. Then he tried once more to speak into her ear, but she shook her head. Go away, father. Don't bother yourself over me. I am at peace and very sleepy. A sob burst forth from one of the women hidden in the shadows. Susanna San Juan seemed to revive for a moment. She sat straight up in bed and said, Justina, please go somewhere else if you're going to cry. Then she felt as if her head had fallen upon her belly. She tried to lift it, to push aside the belly that was pressing into her eyes and cutting off her breath. But with each effort, she sank deeper into the night. I, I saw Doña Susanita die. What are you saying, Dorotea? what I just told you. Dawn, people were awakened by the pealing of bells. It was the morning of December 8th, a gray morning, not cold, but gray. The pealing began with the largest bell. The others chimed in. Some thought the bells were ringing for high mass and doors began to open wide. Not all the doors opened. Some remained closed where the indolent still lay in bed, waiting for the bells to advise them that morning had come. But the ringing lasted longer than it should have, and it was not only the bells of the large church, but those in Sangre de Cristo in Cruz Verde and the Santuario. Noon came, and the tolling continued. Night fell, and day and night the bells continued, all of them, stronger and louder, until the ringing blended into a deafening lament. People had to shout to hear what they were trying to say. What could it be? They asked each other. 
After three days, everyone was deaf. It was impossible to talk above the clanging that filled the air, but the bells kept ringing, ringing some crack with a hollow sound like a clay pitcher. Dona, Dona Susana died. Died? Who? The Signora. Your Signora? Pedro Peramos' Signora. People began arriving from other places, drawn by the endless peeling. They came from Contla, as if on a pilgrimage, and even farther. A circus showed up, who knows from where, with a whirl gig and flying chairs and musicians. First they came as if they were onlookers, but after a while they settled in and even played concerts. And so, little by little, the event turned into a fiesta. Gomola was bursting with people, boisterous and noisy, just like just like the feast days when it was nearly impossible to move through the village. The bells fell silent, but the fiesta continued. There was no way to convince people that this was an occasion for mourning, nor was there any way to get them to leave. Just the opposite, more kept arriving. The media Luna was lonely and silent. The servants walked around with bare feet and spoke in low voices. Susanna said one was buried, and few people in Gomala even realized it. They were having a fair. There were cockfights and music, lotteries and the howls of drunken men. The light from the village reached as far as the media luna, like an aureole in the gray skies. Because those were gray days, melancholy days for the media luna. Don Pedro spoke to no one. He never left his room. He swore to wreak vengeance on Comala. I will cross my arms and Comala will die of hunger. And that was what happened. El Ticuate continued to report, We're now at Carranza. Fine. Now we're riding with General Obregon. Fine. They've declared peace. We're dismissed. Wait, don't disband your men. This won't last long. Father Nantheri is fighting now, and we are with him. Are we with him or against him? No question you're on the side of the government. But we're irregulars. They consider us rebels. Take a rest. As fired up as I am? Do what you want, then. I'm going back to that old priest. I like how they yell. Besides, that way a man can be sure of salvation. I don't care what you do. Pedro Peramo was sitting in an old chair beside the main door of the Media Luna a little before the last shadow of night slipped away. He had been there alone for about three hours. He didn't sleep anymore. He had forgotten what sleep was or time. We old folks don't sleep much, almost never. We may drowse, but our mind keeps working. That's the only thing I have left to do. Then he added aloud, It won't be long now. It won't be long. And continued, You've been gone a long time, Susanna. The light is the same now as it was then. Not as as red, but that same pale light veiled in the white gauze of the mist. Like now, and it was just this hour. I was sitting here by the door, watching it dawn, watching as you went away following the path to heaven, there where the sky was beginning to glow with light, leaving me growing fainter and fainter among the shadows of this earth. That was the last time I saw you. As you went by, you brushed the branches of the paradise tree beside the path, sweeping away its last leaves with your passing. Then you disappeared. I called after you, come back, Susanna. Pedro Peramos' lips kept moving, whispering words. Then, as he pressed his lips together, he opened his eyes, where the pale night of dawn was reflected. Day was beginning. 
At that same hour, Doña Inez, the mother of Gamaliel Villapando, sweeping the street in front of her son's store, saw Abundio Martinez push the half-open door and go inside. He found Gamaliel asleep on the counter, his sombrero over his face as a protection against the flies. Abundio waited for a while for him to wake up. He waited until Doña Inez, who had completed her chore of sweeping the street, came in and poked her son's rib with the broomstick. You have a customer here. Get up. Gamaliel sat up, surly and grunting. His eyes were bloodshot from being up so late and from waiting on drunks, in fact, getting drunk with them. Now, sitting on the counter, he cursed his mother, he cursed himself, and uninterruptedly cursed life, which isn't worth shit. Then he lay back down with his hands stuffed between his legs and fell asleep, still mumbling curses. It's not my fault if drunks are still dragging their asses around at this hour. My poor boy, forgive him, Bondio. The poor man spent the night waiting on some travelers. The more they drank, the more quarrelsome they got. What brings you here so early this morning? She was shouting as she spoke because Obundio was so hard of hearing. Well, I, I need a little bottle of liquor. Has Refugio fainted again? No, she died on me, Madre Villa, just last night, about eleven. After I went and sold my burros, I even sold my burros so I could get help to make her better. I can't hear what you're saying. What did you say? What are you telling me? I said I spent the night sitting up with my dead wife, Refugio. She gave up the ghost last night. I knew I smelled death. That's what I said to Gamaliel. I have a feeling that someone's died. I can smell it. But he didn't pay me any mind. Trying to get along with those strangers, the poor man got drunk. You know how he is when he's like that. He thinks everything's funny and doesn't pay any attention. But let's see now. Have you invited anyone to the wake? No one, Madre Villa. That's why I need the liquor to ease my sorrow. Do you want it straight? Yes, Madre Villa. To get drunk faster. And give it to me quick. I need it right now. I'll give you two pints for the price of one because it's you. I want you to tell your poor dead wife that I always thought well of her and for her to remember me when she gets to the pearly gates. I will, Madre Villa. You tell her that before she gets cold. I'll tell her. I know she's counting on you to pray for her. She died grieving because there wasn't anyone to give her the last rites. What? Didn't you go for Padre Renteria? I did, but they told me he was in the hills. What hills? Well, off somewhere. You know there's a revolution. You mean he's in it too? God have mercy on our souls, Abundio. What do we care about all that, Madre Villa? It doesn't touch us. Pour me another, sort of on the sly-like. After all, Camaleo's asleep. Then don't you forget to ask Refugio to pray to God for me. I need all the help I can get. Don't worry, I'll tell her the minute I get home. I'll tell her to promise. I'll tell her she has to do it or you'll be worrying your head about it. That's just what I want you to do, because you know how women are. You have to see to it that they do what they promise. Abundio Martinez set another 20 centavos on the counter. Now, I'll take that other one, senora, and if your hand is a little liberal, well, that's up to you. The one thing I promise is that I'll drink this one at home with the departed, there, beside my cuca. Get along, then, before my son wakes up. He's pretty sour when he wakes up after a drunk. Get on home, and don't forget my message to your wife. 
Abundio left the store sneezing. The liquor was pure fire, but since he'd been told that drinking it fast made you drunk faster, he gulped it down swallow after swallow, banning his mouth with his shirt tail. He meant to go straight home where Refugio was waiting, but he took a wrong turn and staggered up the street rather than down, following the road out of town. Damiana, called Pedro Penamo, go see who that man is coming down the road. Opondio stumbled on, head hanging, at times crawling on all fours. He felt as if the earth were tilting, that it was spinning, all flinging him off. He would make a grab for it, but just when he had a good hold, it would start spinning again, until he found himself facing a man sitting outside his door. I need money to bury my wife, he said. Can you help me? Damiana Cincineros prays, deliver us, O God, from the snares of the devil, and she thrust her hands toward Obundio, making the sign of the cross. Of the cross. Abundio Martinez saw a frightened woman standing before him making a cross. He shuddered. He was afraid that the devil might have followed him there, and he looked back expecting to see Satan in some terrible guise. When he saw nothing, he repeated, I've come to ask for a little charity to help bury my wife. The sun was as high at his sh- the sun was high as his shoulder, a cool, surly morning, hazy in the blowing dust. As if he were hiding from the sunlight, Pedro Piramos's face vanished beneath the shawl covering his shoulders as Damiana's cries grew louder, cutting through the fields. They're murdering Don Pedro! Abundio Martinez could hear a woman screaming. He didn't know how to make her stop, and he couldn't find the thread of his thoughts. He was sure that the old woman's screams could be heard a long way away. Even his wife must be hearing him because they were piercing his eardrums, even though he couldn't understand the words. He thought of his wife, laid out on her cot, all alone there in the patio of his house where he had carried her to lie in the cool air, hoping to slow the body from decomposing. His kuka, who just yesterday had lain with him, live as life, frolicking like a filly, nipping and nuzzling him. The woman who had given him the son, who had died almost as soon as he was born because, they said, she was in such bad health. A sore eye, the egg, a bad stomach, and who knows what all, according to the doctor who'd come at the last minute, after he'd sold his burrows to pay for the price of his visit, and none of it had done any good. His kuka, lying there in the night dew, her eyes fast shut, unable to see the dawn, the sun, any sun. Help me, he said. I need a little money. But he couldn't hear his own words. The woman's screams deafened him. Small black dots were moving along the road from Gomala. Soon the dots turned into men and they were standing beside him. Damianus's narrows had stopped screaming now. She had relaxed her cross. She had fallen to the ground and her mouth was open as if she was yawning. The men lifted her from the ground and carried her inside the house. Are you all right, Pedro? They asked. Pedro Peramos's head appeared. He nodded. They disarmed Abundio, who still held the bloody knife in his hand. Come with us, they said. A fine mess you've gotten yourself into. He followed them. Before they got to the village, he begged them to excuse him. He walked to the side of the road and vomited something yellow as bile. Streams and streams as if he had drunk ten liters of water. His head began to burn and his tongue felt thick. I'm drunk, he said. He returned to where the men were waiting. He put his arms across their shoulders and they dragged him back, his toes carving a furrow in the dust. 
Behind them, still in his chair, Pedro Peramo watched the procession making its way back to the village. As he tried to lift his left hand, it dropped like lead to his knees, but he thought nothing of it. He was used to seeing some part of him die every day. He watched the leaves falling from the paradise tree. They all followed the same road. They all go away. Then he returned to where he had left his thoughts. Susanna, he said. He closed his eyes. I begged you to come back. An enormous moon was shining over the world. I stared at you till I was nearly blind, at the moonlight pouring over your face. I never grew tired of looking at you, at the vision you were, soft, caressed by the moonlight, your swollen, moist lips, iridescent with stars, and your body growing transparent in the night dew. Susanna, Susanna San Juan. He tried to raise his hand to wipe the image clear, but it clung to his legs like a magnet. He tried to lift the other hand, but it slipped slowly down by his side until it touched the floor, a crutch supporting his boneless shoulder. This is death, he thought. The sun was tumbling over things, giving them form once again. The ruined, sterile earth lay before him. He'd scalded his body. He, his eyes scarcely moved. They leapt from memory to memory, blotting out the present. Suddenly, his heart stopped, and it seemed as if time and the breath of life stopped with it. So there won't be another night, he thought, because he feared the nights that filled the darkness with phantoms that locked him in with ghosts. This was his fear. I know that within a few hours, Abundio will come with his bloody hands to ask for the help I refused him. But I won't have hands to cover my eyes, to block him out. I will have to hear him, listen until his voice fades with the day, until his voice dies. He felt a hand touch his shoulder and straightened up, hardening himself. It's me, Don Pedro, said Damiana. Don't you want me to bring you your dinner? Pedro Peramo replied, I'm coming along, I'm coming. He supported himself on Damiana Cisneros's arm and tried to walk. After a few steps, he fell. Inside, he was begging for help, but no words were audible. He fell to the ground with a thud and lay there, collapsed like a pile of rocks. And that, my friends, will do it for Pedro Peramo by Juan Rufo. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, comments, or if you'd like to make a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And also remember that you can interact with the Q&A at the end of the episode descriptions. And I would ask one final favor that you please rate this podcast, whether you find it a one, a five, anywhere in between, please do give it a rating. I would greatly appreciate it. Until next time.